You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Oh, Lloyd, today our show is about trust, and we are so thrilled because... I've had Bruce Schneier on my on the show before, and we are so thrilled to have him on again because he has this new book that I just finished reading called Liars and Outliers, Enabling the Trust that Society Needs to Thrive. And Bruce Schneier is something else. Let me tell you a little bit about him. If you didn't hear him before, you must you must listen to this and you must read his book. Bruce Schneier is an internationally renowned security technologist called a security guru by The Economist. He's the author of 12 books, including his latest bestseller, Liar and Outliers, which I have right in front of me. It's great. And um, he has other, uh, he's also written tons of essays and articles. And I get his newsletter called Cryptogram. I get this all the time. And he also writes a blog called Schneier, and that's S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R on security. And that's read by over 250,000 people. He's also testified in Congress, and he's a frequent guest on television and radio. Um, We're thrilled that he's back with us. And he served on several governmental technology committees, and he's regularly quoted in the press all the time. I see that. He is the chief security officer of BT. Let me tell you, I just uh, saw recently what InfoWorld said about this book. It says, the fact that liars and outliers prompted me to go back and update my own thinking is truly the measure of Schneier's latest book. And then Computer Week said, I used to think that Bruce Schneier was out of touch with industry CISOs, but now I think they are out of touch with him. So, I mean, this is, this is the, the quality of this book, and I just am so excited to talk to you again, Bruce. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about trust. In your book, Liars and Outliers, you wrote, Trust and cooperation are the first problems we had to solve before we could become a social species. But in the 21st century, they've become the most important problems we need to solve again. That comes right from your introduction. So tell us, what do you mean by trust? You know, it's actually interesting. Trust is a very complicated word, and, so, and it's really overloaded. I mean, it has many different meanings. And I talk about trust, the fundamental trust in enabling society, the trust that allows me to go buy something in a store or get in a taxi or pass someone on the street. You know, this morning I was in a, a room full of about two dozen people. And, and you know, that's that... And I didn't worry at all that one of them would attack me. And, right? and you laugh, and it's, it, because it's perfectly reasonable. But if we were a room full of chimpanzees, that would be impossible. Mm. Right? That level of trust is fundamentally human. So when I think about trust, there's, well, there's an intimate meaning about trust. Right? If I say I trust a friend, 
I'm not trusting their actions. I'm trusting them as a person, right? Mm-hmm. I know them, and I rely that they'll behave in some trustworthy manner, right? I know their intentions, and I trust that their actions will be informed by them. That's not what I'm talking about. Right? When I get in the taxi, I don't know the taxi driver. I don't know his intentions. I don't know if he's a bank robber or a mass murderer, but I trust that he's going to drive me downtown. Right. Right? And that's the kind of trust I mean. It, it, it's, it's a trust of someone's actions. So right. you can think of it as confidence. You can think of it as trustworthiness as compliance. But it's the general trust that we have that everybody in society will basically do the stuff we expect to make society work, right? The, I'll walk into a restaurant and the waiter will bring me my food and it won't be poison. And you trust that when you put your money in the bank, it's going to be there when you go to transfer money out of it. And, right, and that's interesting, too, because that's not trusting a person. I mean, right. I'm not trusting the teller. Right. I'm trusting the corporation. I'm trusting the bank. Right. You know, I flew home from uh, Europe recently. I didn't trust the pilot more than I trusted the, the airline that hired him, right? Their training procedures and their, you know, whatever rules are around him. Right. Or when I use an ATM machine in Japan, you know, I trusted this sort of magical system that would work and would give me yen and would deduct corresponding dollars of my American bank. I don't even know how it works. And, and you might not trust getting into a cab in Afghanistan. And that's right, because, right, <laughs> because that's, and, and, and that's real important, right? In that society, there's kind of less trust in the air. It's a low-trust society, not just Afghanistan. You know, there are, there are cities where cab drivers regularly cheat customers, mm-hmm. and there are rules. You know, I, I happen to be in Thailand, and there were, when I saw on the web, go to this particular location of the airport, get this kind of taxi, and make sure the meter's turned on. I mean, I read things right. that enabled me to trust that system, because otherwise I would be taken. So it's not blind trust, it's not stupid trust. Right. But in a high-trust society, you know, this happens without thinking. And yes. that's really what my book is about. What are the mechanisms that society uses to induce this trust? Mm-hmm. Right? How, how do we force most people to be trustworthy, which in turn enables us to trust, which in turn enables society to thrive? And that's security. Right? How do we keep cab drivers from cheating customers? How do we keep... Uh, restaurants are not poisoning their customers. How do we keep all those people in the room this morning from not attacking each other? I mean, what are the mechanisms we use? So, so let's talk about what makes people trustworthy. You know, because I am a mediator, okay, and people come to me in conflict, I have to be trusted because they're coming to me to to be trusted. So, so you know, I think about. What can I do so that they know that I will be trustworthy? I will, I will keep their confidences, you know, certain things. They don't know me from Adam. So, so what makes people trustworthy, Bruce? So this is interesting. So I think people tend to be naturally trusting and naturally trustworthy. We tend to be a social species. You meet someone on the street, you say hi. You, you know, we don't. We don't mug each other. We don't attack each other. I mean, there are exceptions. But in general, 
we are a social species. We trust others. Now, there are limits. You know, there, we, people do take advantage of each other. There are conflicts. I mean, you're a mediator. You're seeing where the trust failing. Right. But by and large, trust works. Yes. So you as a mediator, simply because you are that, you're, you're neutral, you're going to be seen as trustworthy because that's the default. Right. Now, there are ways you can abuse that right. trust, right? There are, there are things you can do to not seem trustworthy. Right. And, and certainly, lots of criminals can play on that. I mean, the whole confidence game mm-hmm. is you befriend somebody, convince them you're trustworthy, and take their money. All the con men. That's right. They are playing on this natural tendency we have to trust. Now, right, that this, this is a fundamental problem in society. So here, so here I want to describe it. In any cooperative system, there is an alternative non-cooperative strategy. Right? So in any system of trust, there's an alternative strategy not to be trustworthy. And, and the way I describe it in the book is using the prisoner's dilemma. But so basically, if you think about it, I'm better off if I steal. Right? I get your stuff. Mm-hmm. But we are all better off if we live in a society with no theft. Right. Right? Society is better. But if you think about it, I'm way better off if I live in a society with no theft and I also get to steal. Right? <laughs> I get the benefits of the no theft society and right. I get your stuff. Yeah, I don't get ripped off, but I can rip off. Right. But of course, <laughs> if everybody thinks that way, right. everybody steals, society collapses. Right? So there is this fundamental tension between what I think of as the group interest, right, living in a no theft society, and self-interest, stealing. Right? And society needs to balance that. Right? You know, we, we don't live in a society with no theft. We live in a society with a low enough theft that we all can feel safe. Right? And this gets back to your point about Afghanistan. You know, maybe in that society there's too much theft and people don't feel safe. But when society is running well, the number of these people defecting using a parasitical strategy, is low enough. But there'll always, there'll always be some. So, so what makes the untrustworthy thrive? Well, you know, the, and, and when you are, if you think about a parasite, whether it's, you know, a tapeworm in a digestive tract or a thief in a market or a spammer on the Internet, right, they thrive if they're not too successful. Right? I mean, if, if the parasites in your digestive tract are too successful, you die, and they die. Too many thieves in a market, the market closes down, the thieves starve. Mm. Right? Too much spam on the Internet, people don't read their email anymore, the spam doesn't work. Right? So, so thriving, you can't do too much damage to the system. Right? So there's a natural limiting factor. Because mm. right? the, the overall system just won't be able to handle so much defection. Right, right. So you 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 kind of like burst the the bubble if you if there's too much of it. Right. I mean, the society, the system can't handle that much. I mean, the right. You talk about Afghanistan and cabbies, right? You, you don't trust a cab in Afghanistan. If nobody trusts cabs in Afghanistan, the cabs don't make money, and there are no cabs. And so, if if the rate of defectors gets too high, then using the prison dilemma language, mm-hmm. the whole system collapses. 
and I'm thinking of Mexico with all these cartels and you get 40 people who are beheaded and they're left in the street. And now no one wants, you know, the, the you know, I don't know, the, the criminals are still doing okay because of the fact that they can sell the drugs somewhere else. But the whole system is falling apart because someone like me who loves Mexico doesn't want to go to Mexico. Right. And so does everybody else. Right. right? So, and, and they're, unfortunately, they're thriving in that they've still got this system of selling drugs, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're killing each other, but they're... So how does that work? Does that fall into that same category? Well, it does, but it, of course, real world's more complicated. <laughs> okay. In, in, right, in, in a sense, this is a simple model. <laughs> and, and what you're looking at there are sort of several different interlocking systems. I mean, the, 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 the Mexican cartels are willing to destroy the local Mexican social system because they get value in some other system. There's, more, right. there's, bigger, there's bigger geopolitics. Right. So the system that they're really using is the American system or other systems. Or some where, international system. Yeah, some international system where they can sell their drugs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Because, because society, I mean, and, and I think and this is really the crux of the book, society has a number of mechanisms that we use to reduce the number of defectors, right, to keep the people who are the parasites down to a minimum. And I call them societal pressures. Because they really are like they're, they're 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 pressures on people to cooperate, right? To follow the social norm. Uh, the, I mean, I'll give you all four. The first one is morals. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a sort of a lot of our a lot of our need to cooperate, to be fair, to to be nice comes from inside us, right? And and, and I mean morals very generally. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, anything inside our heads. Right? Most of us don't steal, not because we won't get, or we'll get arrested, because we know it's wrong. Right. I mean, you know, it's not true that if it weren't for laws, we'd all be savages. We're basically nice people. Right. Uh, the second one is reputation. Right. You know, we, we stay in line because of what other people will think. And, and you know, reputation is very informal. And, and it works even now in in informal in groups, in families, with friends. If a friend, you know, I invite him over and he steals my sweater, I'm not going to get him arrested. I'm just not going to invite him over anymore. Right. Right. You know. So his reputation will follow him. Yes. And and we are a, a very, as a social species, we're very concerned about reputation. Yes. Yes. Right. So so these two things, morals and reputation, are basically our primitive security toolbox. In this, these are things that evolved with us. Uh, you can see them in other primates, other mammals, other social species. Right? These are the mechanisms that we use informally to induce cooperation. So and they're, they're ex- the intrinsic rather than the, rather than the extrinsic. Yeah. And there's a great experiment on, on reputation. It was done in a psych department. I forget where. So there was a coffee machine in, in the university. Oh, and it's one of those honesty boxes where yeah. you, you take up coffee and you pay a quarter. And what the experimenters did is they put a picture of a pair of eyes behind the coffee pot. And they found that people cheated less. They paid more money for their coffee. Right. Now, and, and the control was like a picture of flowers. Right? So when, when, when you remember that people might be watching, you tend to be more honest. Mm. Right? That's a reputational mechanism. Yes. Now, you know, that works as society goes. Society gets bigger, more complex. And there are other societal pressures, institutions, right? basically laws. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, so, so laws also induce cooperation. And at the end, we have security systems, you know, door locks and things. So I think of it as, as four layers. I mean, taking theft as, as the, uh, the problem, most people don't steal because they know it's wrong. Right? Some people don't steal because of what others will think of them. Right. The rest of them don't steal because they'll get arrested. Right. And the few on top who don't care about anything else won't steal because you locked your front door. Right. right? So all of those societal pressures work together to minimize defection, induce cooperation, and ensure that we live in a society with, you know, more or less no theft. Right. And, and you know, I kind of laugh because I'm thinking of identity theft. You know that that's one of my expertise and the, the, the literally thousands of identity theft victims that, that come to me, either from medical identity theft, criminal identity theft, terrible financial identity theft, whatever it is. And I think, you know, the persons who are doing this, number one, Morals, a lot of them are, you know, uh, methamphetamine addicts and they, they're not thinking about their morals. Reputation, how few get caught, maybe only 10%. So it isn't anything like they think that their reputation is going to be ruined because most people don't even find their, their, uh, their thief. And, um, and the laws, the laws are there, but it gets back to is there security in protecting the, you know, the, the companies, are they protecting the data? You know, there's a heavier burden on the security with regard to identity theft because it is such an insidious crime. You don't, you don't even face your, your victim. Right, and that's an interesting example because identity theft is basically impersonation fraud. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it is. Right. And, and impersonation fraud, you think about it, is actually pretty hard. I mean, go into a bank and pretend to be somebody else and take out the money. That's, that's a but you don't price. really have to go into the bank. That's exactly right. What's yeah. changed yes. is you can now do it remotely. Right. And you can do it remotely from another country. Yeah. So, right, so the few people who could do this can now do it more. So you might have always had people whose morals would have let them do this sort of thing, but they didn't have the ability. Mm-hmm. Right? But now, with technology changing things, they suddenly have the ability to do it. The laws, as you said, are not keeping up, and, and the, the amount of defection goes up. Right. So that goes back to the issue of defectors. You know, we think about defectors as being bad. So why does society need defectors? Well, see, I, and, and I don't mean them as bad. I mean, I'm really looking at how human systems, how communities right. ensure cooperation. Right. An example would be a community of criminals yeah. making sure nobody becomes a police informant. Right. Right. So in, within the, in this society of criminals, cooperation means not talking to police, and defection means talking to police. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't assume any moral stance here. I mean, I'm really talking about the security mechanisms. Right. And, and, and I think that's important. Uh, so... That's one thing. The, the other thing to think about is that the societal norms aren't always objectively moral, right? So in a slave-owning society, the defectors try to free the slaves, right? They're the ones who are breaking the rules. Right. right? They're the ones who are suffering the bad reputation among their peers. They're the ones who are being arrested for, you know, breaking slave laws. Now... Now, their morals are stronger than their concern for reputation. Well, they have, what they have is different morals, right? I mean, they are saying, look, the group norm is wrong. Right. That's what I'm saying. They're, what they have is their morals is stronger than what the reputation pressure would be. Right. 
so what, what, what we're seeing is that defectors are a catalyst for social change, right? They're the ones who break the rules. They're the ones who say, hey, the rules aren't correct. Right. And so society without defectors is a stagnant one. I mean, sort of imagine oh, a, a totalitarian state right? with, with, a, right. with a, a vicious police force. Well, everyone, think of everyone, Iran, you know? Right, right. <laughs> everyone follows the rules. Right. You don't feel a lot of social progress there. Right. So defectors are a, a, a important part of society. Mm-hmm. You may think of the, uh, the Apple computer campaign, right, about the rebels, you know, the, the people who foster change. That's what defectors do. And us sitting here can't always tell the moral defectors from the immoral ones. I mean, mm-hmm. some are obvious. I mean, the guy who's stealing your stuff likely isn't, you know, more moral than you. Right. But, mm-hmm. you know, you think about protest movements, either in the United States or in other countries, uh, you know, advocates for uh, women's rights, civil rights, gay rights. I mean, these are, these are people who start out being social pariahs and end up being, you know, the ones who saw first what was actually moral. Yes, yes. And that came intrinsically. That's the stuff that's intrinsic versus the extrinsic. Yeah, well, intrinsically, or, or you know, and there's a, there's a large group dynamic, right? There, there are small social cores of people who foster this change. I mean, I get into this a lot in the book. It's real yeah. complicated, dealing with, dealing with different groups and, and competing morals. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it, it, yeah, it, it, I think it's real interesting. It, it gets away from my security aspect. Yes. What, what, you know, if it's, when I think about the work I did for the book, I mean, it, it pulls together, uh, you know, I got a dozen different academic disciplines, in psychology and, and uh, evolutionary biology and economics and game theory and anthropology and political science and law and, and theology and philosophy. Yeah, I really thought about anthropology when I was reading your book. That, that really hit me, too. Yeah. You know, I kind of felt like I was, I was rummaging around a university, you know, kicking down doors and demanding answers. It, it's, it's really hard to put a box around what I wanted to talk about because everything led in so many different directions. It's so interconnected. Yeah. And, and, and really what I'm trying to do is to present another way of thinking about the problem. I mean, that, that great quote you started with from, I think, the InfoWorld Reviewer yeah. that said, this book made me think differently. That's really what I'm looking for. I, mean, I think looking at societal problems through this lens yes. is really valuable. And while it might not have the answers, it gives people a new way of thinking about the questions, which itself brings new answers. Right. So do we need to implement new societal systems to deal with this, this, uh, today's globalization technologies? And that's a really interesting question. I spent a whole lot of the book on that. Because yeah. what happens, what we're seeing, is technology is changing things. I mean, I've been talking about these defectors as there being a balance. You know, that most people cooperate as there are a few defectors and society survives. What technology does is it changes the balance. Your example of identity theft is a, is a great one. Right? You know, we've had to deal with this impersonation fraud since forever, but Internet happens, things become easier, and the balance changes. Stuff that used to work no longer works. So yes, in, when that happens, we in society need to do other things. And, and, and might be new laws. It might be new morals. Right? It might be better door locks right? or better Internet security. Right. But we need to restore the balance in some way. Yes. And it's not just in that direction. 
you know, we kind of have a natural feel for the, the, um, the, the murder rate. And, and if the murder rate gets too high, people start saying, hey, we need more policemen. Mm-hmm. And if the murder rate gets too low, people start saying, why are we spending so much money on police? Right, right. The streets are safe. We have other problems. Right, right. right? We sort of have this natural security barometer, yep. right, that, that or, or a thermostat is actually a better word, right, that, that yes. we, we, we continually adjust. Yes. Now, in your book, you list several different types of security systems. Uh, how are these limited by our own abilities? Let's talk about that, because you are the security guru. Well, I mean, so there, there's all sorts of different security systems, and, and you can categorize them in, in dozens of different ways. And, you know, I, I think about them in terms of uh, things that, that we do versus things that are, are done to us. So, you know, a, 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 lock, a door lock that I lock versus police protection that is provided. I think about them in terms of whether they work before the fact or after the fact. So a, a door lock versus a burglar alarm. Right? The door mm-hmm. lock keeps you out. The burglar alarm rings once the guy is in. Right. And there's a lot of different ways to slice and dice it. I, I think these are, are, are useful to think about it. But really, I'm, I'm really trying to be even more general than that. Because definitely in technology, I think that we've been sort of excessively narrow in our security thinking, that we focus on these technological systems, and we don't really think about morals or reputation. I mean, a, a great example would be Internet piracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's something where the social norm on the Internet is, you know, share your stuff. And it almost doesn't matter how much technical security the, the Hollywood or the music industry puts on their stuff, as long as the moral is share, yeah. it's just not going to work. Right. Uh. You know, drug laws have the same problem. When mm-hmm. the social norm changes, fighting it is a very difficult battle. Whatever we resist persists. Because we want it, right? Because enough of us say this is the way the world should be. Right. So so can there be too much security then? I think definitely. I mean, and and totalitarian regimes is a great example. Mm -hmm. You know, the police force is too strong and you don't feel safe. (laughs) Exactly. Right, because there's too much security. Uh, If you're watched at all times, you don't feel free. Right. Right. You know, and, and so security is a trade-off. Yes. And things like you know, liberty and, and privacy are, are, are human values. Right. And so too much security takes away your privacy. And we've talked it, about that before. Right. And it could. It could and it could not. Right? I mean, there are I mean, certain security mechanisms. I mean, I think about, uh, you know, my house and my, how I protect it. I have a door lock. I have a burglar alarm. Right. right? None of those things affect my privacy. Right. right. On an airplane, there are, there's the, the uh, security checkpoint. It doesn't really affect right. my privacy. But when I go through and they want to see my whole body, you know, the, the body right. scan, that, so, <laughs> that's but, the difference. But, but, but that's a different measure, right? A, right. A, 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 a reinforced cockpit door has nothing to do with privacy. An air marshal on your flight has nothing to do with privacy. Right? A, a background check for, you know, before you get on the airplane, that affects privacy. So security mechanisms don't all affect privacy. Some do and some don't. 
Well, we are just about out of time. I just want you to give your website. I just think your book, Liars and Outliers, Enabling the Trust that Society Needs to Thrive. Bruce Schneier, you're wonderful. And this is truly your best book, I think. It's great. Thank you very much. So the website is schneier.com, S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R.com. And there are links to my books, my essays, all my writings, my newsletter, my blog. Everything is I've ever written on the topic is there. And your newsletter is great. So if you're listening and you're interested and you've, you found this to be exciting, then make, make sure you sign up for Bruce's newsletter. It's free. So all thank right. you so much. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you again soon, Bruce. Keep up the great work. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. for Privacy Piracy and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy where you can see our upcoming guests and you can download podcasts. You can see our previous guests and listen to our archived interviews. And we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.